I think many people were caught off guard or really were shocked across our nation, really around the world last August when we heard the news that uh, famous comedian, famous actor Robin Williams was found dead at the age of 63 in his home in California. Caught us off guard. And we were even more shocked, probably you like me, that it turned out that Robin Williams took his own life, that he committed suicide. Now, if there was ever anyone, uh, especially those of us my age that grew up with television in the 70s and early 80s, if there was ever anyone that exuded life, that exuded happiness, that just seemed with his crazy attitude and, and the way that he carried himself anytime he was on stage or in an interview, uh, he would be the last person that you would think of about suicide. But yet he took his own life, and it came out through the news that uh, unknown to many people except those closest to him, he had been struggling for many months with clinical depression. Depression that was brought on by a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease and uh, a little-known uh, painful and debilitating disease known as Dewey uh, Berry's disease, that, that that disease had begun to cripple him, and he couldn't take it anymore. And he chose to take his own life. And for a short time, it seemed like everywhere you turned and social media, on the news and in discussions that people were having among themselves, the topic was suicide. The topic was depression. People were talking about how could you become so depressed, someone like Robin Williams, so depressed that he would take his own life. But yet it seemed like as soon as it became a hot button issue, it began to diminish and began to be pushed back into the sidelines. Because you see, what I found is we don't like to talk about suicide, especially in the church. And we especially don't like to talk about the causes, the things that lead to suicide, things like depression. It's one of those issues that, that we would rather just kind of disengage from because uh, it's something we're not comfortable talking about. And as people were talking about suicide, as people were talking about depression, I found that once again the church rolled out their old tried and true responses that just seem trite. They don't seem like they have any solutions to them anymore. The idea that how could someone commit suicide? All they would need to do is just love Jesus a little more and it would, it would change them. Or, or maybe if they had just a little bit more faith or, or maybe if Robin Williams had been an adamant Christian and, and he had followed God, then he wouldn't have turned that way. See, those sound nice, and they sound like nice, fit-in-a-box Sunday school answers, but they don't offer any solutions. And they certainly don't leave the family and the friends and those devastated in the wake of those actions any comfort. But yet suicide is something I don't think we can ignore. It's not something we need to ignore in the church. Matter of fact, the statistics compel us to become engaged in the United States of America, there are over 25,000 suicides reported annually. 25,000. That's 83 suicides a day. That's one suicide every 17 minutes. So that means that the time that we will spend in church this morning, three people in the United States of America will decide to end their life. You need to remember, for every successful suicide, there are between 15 and 20 attempted suicides. It's the eighth leading cause of death, ahead of homicide, ahead of murder. It's the third leading cause of death among those between the ages of 15 and 18. The average age for suicide attempts is 37 for men and 27 for women. But the average age for completed suicide, for somebody that attempts and completes suicide, is between the ages of 53 
and 54. Statistics tell us that some 10,000 college students a year will attempt suicide. 10,000 college students. And over 6,500 teenagers will die from suicide every year. 6,500 teenagers. That's 18 teenagers a day in the United States. That's every 80 minutes another teenager will kill themselves. But statistics also tell us that 1,000 teenagers a day will attempt to take their life. That's over one a minute per day. 73% in a recent survey, 73% of all of those under 20 years of age said they have considered or thought or even attempted suicide. 75% almost of those under 20 years of age. Statistics also tell us that 90% of those in the United States of America know someone or have been around someone or know a family that has been affected by suicide. That's almost every one of us in here. By those statistics, we would understand that we are compelled to deal with the issues of suicide. Why are 25,000 people in the United States of America killing themselves each year? Why are 6,500 teenagers, teenagers that have never really understood all that life has to offer, why are they killing themselves? Why are 10,000 college students a year attempting to end their own lives? What, what drives them to that? Those statistics should break our hearts. They should compel us to act. We, we can't remain silent. We can't keep pushing it under the rug. The church has to stand up and do something. Now, I have to be honest with you. When I started this series, suicide was not one of the issues I planned to talk about. I had a list of things I thought were hot-button issues, things that I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to talk about, and suicide was not one of them. But this summer... As I planned to, to look at the series and began to study the series, and I began to study what we've talked about the last two weeks, that, that life is so precious to God, and that each one of us as Christians are compelled, we have to do more to advocate pro-life, and that's pro-life from the cradle to the grave, that we have to be about ministering and helping people in their quality of life that we have got to be about helping people understand all that life is. And as I began to study that, it, I realized that suicide was not something that I could push off. It was not something that I could, could ignore as we address this series. During that same time this summer, as I was looking at these and beginning to pray about what I was going to talk about, I got word from Texas that a former seminary professor that was a pastor of mine that many people in Texas knew that was uh, a very popular pastor. He pastored a very large and prominent church. He, he had taught at the seminary. He had taught at some colleges. That He was the former president of the Texas Baptist Convention that people all around the state knew him. But at the age of 64, uh, he was in the throes of clinical depression, something that many people didn't know. And he took his own life. And as I began to contemplate how a pastor, and that's the sixth pastor that I've known personally that's taken their life in the last four years. You see, how does that reconcile with that old answer that if they just loved Jesus more? How does that reconcile with the old thing that if they just had more faith, then it wouldn't be something that they would deal with? See, I'm no stranger to suicide myself. When I was in high school, the four years I was in high school, six students in my school committed suicide. One of them was a very close friend of mine when we were sophomores in high school. As a student pastor for, pastor for the last 28 years, I, I've counseled numerous, hundreds probably, of families and students that were struggling with suicide, young adults, college students. 
I've, I've been the officiant. I've handled many funerals where the person we were sending away was a person that had taken their own life. I've comforted. I've, I've counseled. I've cried with numerous families that are left in the wake and left with the questions that suicide brings, even my own family. See, almost 12 years ago, my youngest brother, struggling with depression, struggling with the idea that life wasn't turning out the way that he had planned, checked himself into a hotel and overdosed on drugs, leaving a note behind saying that he couldn't handle life anymore. So suicide's not anything new. Suicide is a painful and selfish act. It's an act that robs the person that commits the act of, of a future. It robs them of all that God has planned for them. It robs them of, of God's future life that He has for them. But it robs us, those that are left behind. It robs us of seeing that person become all that God had planned for them. It robs us of being a part of their lives and being able to invest in their lives. It is horribly selfish. And the Bible is pretty clear that suicide is a sin. Now, suicide is not the unforgivable sin. You know, we've talked in the last couple of weeks that all life is precious to God. And if life is precious to God and He is the creator of life, then He alone has the authority to end life. And so when we take that authority on ourselves, we sin. But for too long, the church has pushed this idea that somehow suicide, we thought that we could guilt people into not doing it by telling them it's an unforgivable sin. That if they commit suicide, that somehow it rends their relationship with Christ. And that's not the case. The Bible is very clear. There's only one unforgivable sin, and that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which simply means rejecting Christ's offer of salvation. See, that's the only sin that will cause you to rend a relationship with Christ. That's the only sin that will send you to be separated from God for eternity. We recognize that the blood of Jesus Christ dies for our sins, the sins we committed yesterday, the sins we commit today, and the sins we commit tomorrow. So we understand that if someone takes their own life, if they are a Christian, then we recognize that the blood of Jesus Christ covers them, and by God's grace they are in heaven. But that does not confront it does not give us an excuse to look away and act like it's not something that can happen, to ignore those that are struggling, those that are tempted to take their own life. Because you see, I believe that all life matters. I believe this morning that your life matters. And statistics tell us that it, uh, out of 100 people, 20% in their lifetime will consider or think about suicide. That means in a room of 100 people, 20 of you today, have sometime in your life come to a place where you felt like suicide was an option for you, where you felt like suicide might be your only choice. See, the word suicide comes from the Latin word su, which means oneself, and sita, which means to take life. And while the Bible doesn't use the word suicide, there are at least seven examples in the Old and New Testament of people that have taken their own life. People like Abimelech in 2 Kings, he was a king and, and he felt like he was, was rejected by the people and it says he forced his soldiers to kill him. Suicide. People like King Saul who had confronted David and at the end of Saul's life when he felt like he had been rejected by the people, he felt like he was a failure. He fell on his own sword, had his armor bearer hold a sword and he killed himself. We know that Judas who was one of the apostles of Christ after uh, turning Christ in, after rejecting Christ, 
becoming a traitor to Christ. He recognized that what he had sacrificed, what he had traded, was never going to be worth what he had. And the Bible tells us that he went out and killed himself. Church traditions say that he went out and hung himself. So the Bible is not silent on suicide. It's clear that it's an unacceptable behavior because as Christians, we recognize that our bodies are not our own. They've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells the Corinthians, Do not you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You see, when we become a Christian, this body is no longer ours for our own choice. We learned that two weeks ago. It's no longer ours to do with as we please. It is the temple of the living God. It is the Holy Spirit's dwelling place. And to take that and end that before God deems it our time is a sin. Romans 14, 7 says, For none of, our, none of us lives to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. You see, as Christians, our lives belong to God. We need to recognize that by taking our life, we are usurping the authority that is God's alone. It's not in our control. It's not in our power. It's a sin. Now, you, you could go over a huge list of reasons why people commit suicide. You could talk about all the things that they come up with, and there's no way to really cover a comprehensive list, but there are several themes that people give when, when contemplating suicide or when trying to commit suicide that I think it's important for us to recognize this morning. The first, and probably the one that catches more people off guard, is people attempt suicide to fail. You've got to recognize for every one completed suicide, there are 20 attempts. And there are a lot of people that go and try to commit the act of suicide just as an act of crying out for help. Just as an act of trying to get the people around them, the people that say they love them's attention. Matter of fact, 85% of all people that attempt suicide give some kind of warning. They, they tell people. They leave hints along the way. They say things to the people that are in their lives. It is a cry for help. But that doesn't mean we can ignore it. You see, people say, well, well if somebody's talking about suicide, then surely they're not going to really commit suicide. That, that's a lie. Many times people will attempt to get others' attention. And so they try to kill themselves. The second thing that people do in list is trying to attempt suicide is to escape the pain and the problems of life. See, many people see that ending their life is the only way to end the circumstances or the situations that they're in, the difficulties they face. They feel like it's the only way out. The only hope for them is death because they are in the moment caught up in a, 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 an emotional pool. So many times this sign of suicide is not something that, that they thought out. It's something that just is pressed upon them because of a person, because of a relationship, because of something that happens at work, because of something that doesn't go their way. And, and they feel like the only hope they have in that moment, in that instant, is to end their life. Many times they feel like it has become a failure in their life and their only hope is to end what God has started. Another reason that people attempt suicide is they don't feel like they belong. People feel like they've been rejected by friends, by family, by society. And, and I found in counseling people in this circumstance that no matter how much they're loved, no matter how much their family loves them, no matter how popular they are, no matter how much they've been accepted, their emotion, their heart has told them that they are all alone, that no one cares about them, and they feel isolated. 
Sometimes in that sense of aloneness, sometimes in that sense of hurt, because they hurt, they want to hurt others. And so they do it really as an act of revenge. They're trying to get everybody back for rejecting them, get everybody back because people have hurt them in the past. People have hurt them at school or hurt them at work or hurt them in a family. And so they think this one-time act is going to, to get people back. Probably the greatest reason that I feel like people commit suicide is they feel like they have no vision of a brighter future. They feel like it's never going to get any better than this. And they get caught up in a moment of depression, a moment of discouragement. They feel like they've got nothing to live for. Now I want you to recognize this morning that if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, if you have struggled with suicidal thoughts, if you, if you are in that pathway, then we also have to recognize not only are these reasons that people convince themselves that they need to take their life, but also we need to recognize there is an enemy that is a liar. The Bible tells us that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we need to recognize that a lot of times as, as we begin to get in discouragement, as we face difficult situations, as we face struggles in our marriages, in our workplaces, and at school, and with our cliques, and with our peer groups, or, or in our finances, as we begin to face difficulties, the enemy will come and begin to whisper in your ear, life's not worth it anymore. No one cares. He's a liar. And many of you this morning have bought into that lie in the past. I want to tell you, he is a liar and the truth is in him. We learned two weeks ago that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God, before the foundations of the earth, had a plan for you. That he has every moment of every day stepped out for you. And your steps are perfect in Christ Jesus. We need to understand why people do what they do. See, I've seen all of these reasons, but the thing I've dealt with more than anything else is this idea of discouragement and depression. And it seems like discouragement and depression will latch on to one of those other reasons and compound it. See, as you get discouraged and you feel alone, all of a sudden that discouragement will drive you to more isolation. That depression will drive you to more isolation. You see, depression is another one of those things we don't like to talk about in church. Depression is one of those things we don't like to admit to those around us. For some reason, we, we've convinced ourselves that to talk about being depressed, to talk about being discouraged, especially as a Christian, is a lack of faith. Surely Christians should never be discouraged. We have Jesus Christ. Surely Christians should never be in despair. We should never face anxiety. But that's a lie. All of us in this room probably at one time or another have faced discouragement. And discouragement that goes untreated can always lead to depression. So we need to recognize there are levels of depression. From those day-to-day -day discouragements that you might face that begin to linger and maybe turn into a little deeper discouragement, turn into depression. Those seasons of depression that some of you face during times of your life, maybe during times of the year, maybe during certain circumstances, certain situations in your life, they bring on discouragement, bring on depression. And then it can lead all the way to what's known as clinical depression. And clinical depression is a medical issue. And let me say this, this is free, but let me tell you how important. It's time for the church to stop ignoring the need for medical help for medical issues. For some reason, we, we've this idea that, that we don't need to send somebody that's facing clinical depression or difficult depression to a doctor to get help is ridiculous. 
If you have a heart problem, you go to the doctor to look at your heart. If you have a chemical imbalance and a brain problem that is causing you to linger in a time of discouragement and depression to the point that it drives you to have suicidal thoughts, you need to get medical help. You need to go see a doctor. There is such a thing as clinical depression that is beyond your help. It's beyond just praying. It's beyond just coming to church. It's beyond just trying to think good thoughts. It is something taking place in your body that demands medical attention. Currently in the United States of America, over 19 million people suffer from clinical depression. That's one out of every 15 suffer from clinical depression. In America, there are 28 million people currently on some form of medication to treat depression. And yet it's just that hidden little secret in the church that we just don't want to talk about. Listen, I I'm, will freely admit that I've struggled with depression in my life. I've never gotten to the place of clinical depression, but I've struggled with discouragement and allowed that discouragement to linger to a place of depression where depression begins to envelop you. Some of you in this room know what that's all about. You've walked that path, but yet we're so ashamed. People say, well, well, pastor should never admit that he's got problems. Listen, Paul said, I'm a sinner, the worst of sinners. I, I got more problems than all of you combined. And I told you before, I am as messed up in my life as any of you. Why? Because God, his whole job in Jesus Christ is to fix messed up people. And you can't get fixed until you admit you're messed up. And sadly, what happens to the church is instead of becoming a hospital for the sick, we just feel like it's a, a place that the saints should all come and put on smiley faces and act like none of us have any problems and nothing is wrong and everything is great. And we're going to walk out singing and face a world that's going to beat us up when we leave. That's not the place of the church. See, some of you in this room, you're in the midst of depression. Some of you in this room, you're in the midst of discouragement. Some of you may be even struggling with clinical depression. It took everything you had to get out of bed this morning. It took everything you had to convince yourself that, that you needed to go on and that you needed to be at church. Why? Because you were in the, the confines and the grasp of depression. See, depression speaks a language of its own. It's a time-defying sadness. It confuses your emotions and your mind. It is persistent. It brings helplessness and pessimism. It brings a sense of guilt and worthlessness and hopelessness. It robs you of the joy for the things that you used to enjoy. It causes restlessness. It causes irritability. It's a dance between not sleeping and sleeping too much. Psalms says this in Psalms 91.6, it is a plague that destroys at midday. Some of you have experienced that. Doctors say today that in the United States of America that Depression is the most common emotional problem that has risen to immense proportions. And I will tell you today that no one is immune to it, from the rich and famous like Robin Williams, to the pastor, to the teenager, to the mom, to the dad, to your co-worker. Depression knows no educational boundaries, knows no cultural boundaries, it knows no educational boundaries. But the one thing we do know about depression is that it takes time to develop. And since it takes time to develop, it can be dealt with. It can be addressed. Depression doesn't happen overnight. It builds on itself. And I urge any of you that if you struggled with a lingering and continued depression, if you have a depression that has lingered over time and it is beginning to affect you emotionally, it is beginning to affect your family, it's beginning to affect your work, then I urge you to seek medical help. 
But for those of you that are probably like me that have dealt with depression in seasons, that understand the triggers that bring on depression, maybe you've dealt with discouragement, maybe you've dealt with that battle, the Bible's not silent on it. Matter of fact, one of the greatest heroes of the faith dealt with discouragement and depression. He even dealt with suicidal thoughts, and he dealt with them after what was his greatest spiritual victory. His name's Elijah. And we know the story of Elijah the prophet because he was the one that was called to confront the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember the story? Israel had turned its back on God. The king Ahab and his wife Jezebel were worshiping false gods. And God called Elijah to stand up. And so Elijah stood up against all of the false prophets. And he ended up on Mount Carmel confronting them and they built these altars and the prophets of Baal prayed to their gods and Elijah taunted them. And then Elijah fell down on these these altars and asked God to show up. And it said in the Bible that fire fell from heaven and consumed all of the false prophets, consumed all of those that had turned their back on God. And after that, for the first time in three years, rain began to fall. And all of those people on Mount Carmel recognized that God is who He says He is and He could do what He says He could do. And you would think that Elijah in the midst of that, his greatest victory, would have experienced power. But you know what Elijah did? He ran scared. He faced depression. And 1 Kings chapter 19 tells this story, and I'm not going to go all the way through it, but I just want you to see how it progressed. To see that you're not alone this morning if you're facing dis- discouragement, if you're facing depression. 1 Kings 19 says he came off of Mount Carmel and the first thing he says is he was afraid and he ran for his life. You see, fear is one of those feelings that overwhelms people that are dealing with depression. They become fearful of tomorrow, fearful of what may not never happen. They build scenarios in their head and they become afraid of those things. Elijah felt fear. Said he became suicidal in verse 4. Said he prayed for God to take his life. Began to feel like he didn't have any other options. He, he grew excessively tired. In verse 5, it said he laid down and slept for days. He was in the midst of depression. He began to feel, have, have feelings of rejection. In verse 10, he told God, everyone's abandoned me. No one cares about me anymore. No one is standing up for God. I'm all alone. Everyone else is left. And he began to feel rejected. And what happens in that moment of rejection is we convince ourselves that even God's not paying attention. So he looked up to heaven and it, he didn't personally direct it towards God, but he said, no one is standing up for me. I'm all alone. This went on for almost two months, and so we can see how it started with discouragement. See, what happens is when you're on emotional high, many times after some of your greatest emotional moments, a wedding, a victory, some great promotion, some project that you've done that you've poured everything into, transitions in your life, the kids move out, Kids growing older, those transitions, those times, we we pour all of our emotion into it. And after it's over, we find ourselves empty. And in that emptiness, depression sneaks in. And Elijah was empty spiritually. He was empty emotionally and he was empty physically. And discouragement and depression began to take over. God wasn't silent. And I think by looking at how God handled it, it can give some of us hope on how we can help those around us and how we can help ourselves. So what did God do? Surely God would have, would have called out Elijah. I mean, he's a prophet of God. Elijah, wake up. What are you doing? You, you don't have any faith? Surely God preached him a sermon, right? Because that solves everything, doesn't it? I've had people bring to people in my office and say, Pastor, my, my son or daughter is depressed. My, my husband or wife is depressed. Would you just, you just preach at them? 
Just tell them how much Jesus cares about them. Because somehow we think that's going to solve everything. And listen, I'm not discounting the power of God to change lives, power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. But for many people caught in the throes of discouragement and depression and suicidal thoughts, that's not enough. So what did God do? First of all, God recognized what was going on. He recognized that Elijah was struggling with depression. He recognized that Elijah had difficulties. He didn't diminish what he was going through. So instead of going and preaching to him, so instead of going and, and, and trying to rebuke him and tell him how bad he is and tell him how his feelings aren't real, he allowed him to rest. And so for a couple of weeks, God was there and took care of Elijah. The Bible says God sent ravens to bring him food. God brought shade so that he could rest. He sent water so that he could be refreshed. And he allowed Elijah to replenish. Because see, sometimes people that are going through emotional times need time to rest. I wonder how many of you have gotten in an argument with your spouse or argument with a coworker because they just weren't responding the way you were responding to a situation or circumstance. See, you bounce back, maybe a death in the family, maybe a problem with children or maybe a problem with, with work and, and your spouse seems to be okay and you're not okay and so they're telling you everything's okay. Why can't you just smile? Why can't you just act like everything's okay because it is okay? Because to them it's not. You see, God didn't discount the emotions that Elijah was feeling and you can't discount the emotions that other people are feeling. See, what God did is he recognized that those emotions were real and genuine. I tell parents this all the time. One of the worst things you can do is to discount your kids' emotions because they're kids. Your child comes and tells you that they're in love. The worst thing you can do is say, you, don't even, you can't spell love. You don't know what love is. You're 16, you're 17, you don't know what love is. Why? Because to them, it is love. Don't discount what they're feeling. Don't just rush by the emotion. God took time to let Elijah wrestle with those emotions and feelings. And then when it was just the right time because he'd been watching, because he'd been loving, because he'd been helping him, God had a plan. The first thing he did to Elijah, you know what he did? He said, wake up, Elijah. He said, I want to see that mountain over there. I want you to go to that mountain. And the mountain was Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is famous because that's the place where Moses got the Ten Commandments. You know what he did? He sent him to church said, I want you to go spend some time in a holy place. Some of the greatest things you can do when you're struggling with depression and discouragement is get around people that love Jesus because it's contagious. Because And church doesn't always work this way. My prayer is that this church will be different and, and we, are, we are moving that direction, that we will be a hospital, like I said, where hurt people can come and we can get around each other and be hurt together and be genuine and be real. And as we're real and as we're genuine, we can encourage each other and lift each other up. And, and when you're discouraged and you're in despair, you can come and begin to worship. You know what worship does? Worship, when you begin to worship in spirit and truth, it takes your mind off of your problems and puts them on where they're supposed to be God. And like the old hymn writer said, when you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. He said, I want you to get in a holy place. I want you to get in a spiritual place. He sent him to church. The second thing he did is he went to Elijah and asked him, tell me what's wrong. Tell me what you're feeling. Matter of fact, he asked him twice in verse 18 19. He said, tell me again, what are you feeling so I can understand what you're going through? See, sometimes people just need to share. Sometimes people just need to talk. And we are in such a fast-paced world today. It's sad, but let's just be honest. Most of us would rather text somebody than talk to somebody. 
We'd rather talk to somebody on the phone than talk to them face to face. Why? Because it's easy to disengage. We've got a world around us that everyone is disengaging, and because of that, no one feels like they have anybody to be with. No one feels like anyone is understanding their feelings and their emotions. The greatest way you can show someone love who is going through discouragement and suicide is to spend time with them and listen to them. Give them your attention. God said, share with me what's going on. He listened to what Elijah was dealing with, and he didn't discount his emotion. He didn't come back and say, oh, that's stupid, and that's a lie, and you shouldn't believe that. See, those are reactions that we have. That's not planned out response. God listened. And God recognized that as Elijah shared, Elijah was caught up into some bad thinking. Because see, most of the time, bad thinking is what gets us into discouragement and depression. We start thinking no one cares. We start thinking we're all alone. We start thinking there's no answers. You know what Elijah told God when God said what's wrong? He said, I'm all alone. No one else is worshiping you, God. I'm the only one who's been faithful. And, and no one else even cares. And God, you're not even paying attention. And so you know what God did? God gently reminded him, Elijah that he wasn't alone. Matter of fact, God said, listen, I know of at least 7,000 other believers that are just like you, Elijah. 7,000 people that are down there worshiping. You're not alone. And Elijah, that whole time then you thought I wasn't doing anything, because that's what happens in discouragement, depression, the enemy comes and he lies to us. What did he tell you? God doesn't care about you anymore. God's not even listening. God's not even thinking. That's what Elijah was feeling. And God reminded him, God said, listen, that whole time I've been watching, I've been loving, I've been providing for you. And then he told Elijah, and the last thing, I've got something for you to do. See, he gave him a job. He said, there is another prophet coming up. His name is Elisha. And I want you to go and pray for him. You're not done. See, what he was helping him understand is, is Elijah, you can't die because I have a job for you. Your purpose is not fulfilled. And you see, those are things that we can do for people around us that are struggling. We can help them hear the voice of God. We can listen to them. We can nurture them. We can help them discover their purpose. But to do that, we've got to be engaged. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, if you're struggling with depression here, you need to recognize you are not alone. I know the enemy tells you you're alone, but in this room this morning, there are many people that have walked that path that you're walking. Some that are walking it right now with you, you're not alone. You need to recognize God's not done with you. He has a plan for your life. If you're struggling with those things, the greatest thing you can do for yourself is to reach out to someone. You've got to overcome your pride because pride will tell you you can't share those. But reach out to a friend. Reach out to a teacher. Reach out to a coach. Reach out to a parent. Reach out to a minister. Reach out to a doctor. Reach out to somebody to let them know what you're going through. Because I know you feel all alone, but you're not. And the only way you can discover that is to reach out. But you've got to overcome pride. And then probably most importantly, you need to reach out to God. All that stuff I said earlier, we don't need to discount. Because the Bible says when you begin to share God your feelings, God's not going to get mad at you. God, I'm angry. God, I'm hurt. God, I don't understand. Some people say, well, if you question God, then it's a lack of faith. No, it's not. The only way you can get answers from God is when you ask God questions. The only way God can comfort your hurt is when you reveal to Him that you're hurt. You say, well, God should know you're hurt. Well, He does know, but He wants to hear you say it because He wants to know that you think He is the solution. 
Reach out to God. God, I don't understand. God, I'm hurting. God, I'm all alone. Cry out to Him. That's when He can bring comfort. That's when He can begin to renew your spirit. That's when He can begin to refresh you. You see, you and I this morning, even if you're not struggling with that, we need to reach out. We need to do more. We need to open our ears and open our eyes to those around us that are struggling with depression, struggling with suicide, struggling with discouragement. We need to listen to them. We need to pray with them. We need to pray for them. We need to be engaged. And that means coming out of your comfort zone. The pastor that passed away in Texas that I shared earlier, the minister that was leading a sermon, ended the sermon at that funeral with these words. As Christians, we should worry less about whether Christians who have killed themselves go to heaven and worry more about how we can help people like them find hope and joy in living. Our most urgent problem is not the morality of suicide, but the mental and spiritual despair that drags people down to suicide. Loved ones who have died in their own hands, we can safely trust to our gracious God. But loved ones whose spirits are even now slipping silently towards death, those people, those are who we are burdened by. Those are who we have to reach. Then he read Matthew 11. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. He said, God desires for each one of us to have life and live it abundantly. As painful as your experiences are in the days on this earth, we serve a God who can help us, who can help us overcome those feelings to experience a deeper meaning of his love. The pain of suicide can run deep. The pain of depression can run deep. And those who have been tempted by it, and for those families who have experienced it, it is a pace of darkness. And in those times of despair and sadness, it is critical that we allow God to take over and carry the burdens that we bear. It's only through God's grace that sorrow can be turned to joy. And at the cross of Christ, there is power to heal even the most painful circumstances and paths that we've been on. I want to implore you, church. We have got to engage those around us hurting those around us in need of help. Because if we don't, no one else will. Let's pray.